Molehills are quite small, but at, at a small scale, they are mountainous. If you're making a larger thing out of something that is not so large. Right. You probably didn't need the explanation. It's fairly self-evident what that means. Got some follow-up from last podcast. Uh, we spoke about Gambit from the X-Men. And I described him as kind of a French dude with a question mark at the end. He's not French. He's from Louisiana. I was quickly corrected. Uh, <laughs> he is from an area of America, which yeah, has a lot of French influence. And so he has, he's got these random smatterings of French throughout his speech, which I always took to mean that he was French, but he is not. I see. And also, uh, we, were, we were talking about the Iliad and the Odyssey, and I said I couldn't quite remember what order they went in or, or anything like that. The Odyssey is actually a direct sequel to the Iliad, almost. It's, uh, the, the Iliad is the Trojan War, which I also mentioned, talking about the uh, Aeneid, 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 I think it's pronounced. Uh, I also mispronounced that last episode. And uh, uh, I mentioned it as almost a coincidence, but of course it's not a coincidence. It's exactly the same story that the Iliad is talking about from... Uh, one side and the Aeneid is talking about from essentially the other side. I think Aeneas escapes from Troy and, and founds Rome. So uh, there's that. And then the Odyssey is the return of Odysseus from Troy. Right. So it takes him 10 years to get back from, from that war. And everyone assumes he's dead. And his wife, in fact, is sort of holed up in this big house because he was quite, you know, rich. And his wife is holed up in this big house with, with all these suitors kind of just tagging along and kind of living in his house, trying to persuade her to marry them. But she's like, no, I think he's still alive. I'm going to wait for him. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And yes, he was, I think he was cursed by, I can't remember which god. Uh, and that's why it took him 10 years to get back. And he had all sorts of adventures, uh, including the Cyclops, which... Did you, you, are you familiar with the story of the Cyclops? Let's see. Well, obviously I know what the Cyclops looks like. Right. I don't, don't think I know the actual details of the story, no. Okay, well, I haven't brushed up on that either, so I, I can't tell you the details, but the, the rough idea is Cyclops, big giant, one big eye in the middle of his face, uh, Odysseus et al. get trapped, and I think they escape by strapping themselves underneath some sheep. Ah. I think that's the thing. They, you know, and they strap themselves underneath the sheep, and the sheep walk out and they escape. I think that's the story. Anyway, there is a theory that the Greeks came up with the idea of the Cyclops because they saw some intrepid Greek explorers came across the skull of an elephant. Mm. And they'd never seen an actual elephant. They had nothing but its skull to go on. And elephants have obviously got this huge nasal cavity where the trunk is. Ah, and they saw that huge hole right in the middle of this skull and imagined of this, you know, massive skull. And they imagined that that was the eye socket of a giant. And that's where the story of the Cyclops comes from. That's fascinating. So interesting bit of, it's not, I mean, that, there's no way to prove that, but that is a theory as to where the story of the Cyclops comes from. That is actually fascinating. Have you, um, uh, have you been to Greece? I have not. I've always wanted to go to Greece. I've neither gone to Greece nor 
Italy, nor indeed Egypt, all the, all these places with lots of mythology that I wanted to go to, I would still like to go to and have not yet had the opportunity. Yeah, I've actually, um, uh, I did go to Greece on my honeymoon, um, along with Germany and America. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a long honeymoon. Anyway, uh, Greece, we actually, just because of the timing of things, we ended up going to Greece in the winter. And uh, that's a rather unusual move because most tourists, obviously, Greece is obviously most famous for its... Bit of a summer destination. Yeah, and it's most famous for its islands and, um, uh, you know, that that uh, quintessential beautiful scene that you have with the Mediter- the blue Mediterranean and the white walls and the the um, uh, that, that sort of uh, island ambience is something that most people think of when they think of tourism in Greece. But we ended up going in the winter and we thought that, well... Most of the islands were closed in that all the hotels on the islands were closed, which means you can't really stay anywhere. So we thought, why not try and spend the, was it five days I think we had, uh, just in Athens. Right. So uh, we arrived uh, and we spent basically the five days just doing things around the city. We took some tours to Delphi was one place that we went Mm. um, and another place called Sounion, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean uh, with, which has the Temple of Poseidon, I think. That makes sense. Yeah, and uh, uh, I have to say that Greece is a great place to go in the winter because the climate is very nice. It's not very cold. There are not very many tourists around, which meant that going to the Parthenon was actually very, very nice because we went there first thing in the morning and there, were, there was nobody there. I mean, there was obviously the, the tourism staff there, but there were no like hordes of tourists or anything. Oh, wow. And so it was very tranquil and it was very um, uh, quiet and peaceful and you just get the, the sense of the magnificence of such an old structure like that when there's nobody else around. You know, it's just you and these, this beautiful white marble and you go up really close to some of these columns and you have a look and you see the detail mm. and the, the, you know, the beauty of that artwork and then you just sort of get this chilling sensation that this is, what is it? 3,000 years old, 4,000, I don't really know, <laughs> but it's very old. And we, uh, that was sort of, we also went to the National Museum in Athens and uh, you can see some pottery and some ceramic work there that is, yeah, about three or 4,000 years old. Uh, again, I'm embarrassing myself with my incredibly poor knowledge of history. By the time you get that far back, it's much of a muchness. Really. Yeah, that's right. It's all, <laughs> it's all the same, you know. Um, uh, anyway, uh, again, when you see those things, you just sort of look at that and you think that people this long ago were creating th- objects of this much beauty. How, like, what are we doing these days? <laughs> you know, how, I mean, how far is how far have we actually come as you know as a species, especially with with regard to artistic expression? That are we making things that are specifically more beautiful than this? Well, obviously, you can't compare like, uh, you know, for example, Tolkien's The Silmarillion, which is a literature, a piece of literature, to a piece of ancient ceramic artwork. No, I think we did compare The Silmarillion to The Iliad last episode. So comparisons right. are clearly possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, definitely, if you have the chance, I recommend going to uh, to Greece. The I guess the You'd probably get the similar sensation in Egypt and, and of course, Rome as well. They're just this, the sense of scale that, you know, we are, we are really just a small, this modern, modern civilization that we, that we all live in now. It's only really a small, spe- small part of this larger picture of, of human history. 
Yeah, well, even more amazing than that, when you think that humans have been around for, and now I'm embarrassing myself with my knowledge of uh, paleontology, but uh, hu humans have been around for some, some 50,000 years or so. Right. And the entire of what we consider to be history is only about 6,000 years, if that. Like, we don't, written, recorded history does not go that far back. Right. And humans as a species have been around for a lot longer than that. So we really are just a blip. Have you, have you been to Luanji in Kyoto? Uh, probably. It's the one with the seven stones that you can only ever see six of them at one point or something. Like there's always one stone hidden wherever you sit. And it's quite famous for being a Buddhist rock garden. I guess I haven't. No. It's, it's near the, the Golden Pavilion. Anyway, that, that is a super famous, it's probably one of the, the three or four most famous tourist destinations in Kyoto. And it's famous as this place of contemplation where you go and you contemplate this very zen rock garden that has this property that wherever you stand one of the at least one of the rocks will be hidden from view so there's no place you can stand uh, at least within the range of places you're allowed to stand because you're only allowed to stand on one side of it right from from which you can see all the rocks and you if you look up photos of kyoto it will almost certainly come up and in the photos especially in the tourist brochures there is a solitary contemplator sitting by the side looking at the rock garden and it's beautiful but i have never been there when there are not a hundred other people there and it's that's because when you're talking about seeing you know going early in the morning and having the place to yourself that seems you know like it would be a, a real experience and right. i'm not i suspect that is not possible with Yonji because most of the tourists are Japanese and they're all early risers anyway. So. Right, right. Yeah, I think um, uh, I remember that when we were at the Parthenon, the, just about when we were leaving, so it was, must have been about sort of 10 a.m. or so, mm -hmm. um, that's when, you know, the, these buses started arriving and uh, just masses of people were flocking in. Right. I can, remember, I can remember as we were going out the exit, we were watching all these people come in the entrance and... Uh, we were thinking, you know, what, what a special privilege it was to see such a magnificent piece of, you know, history like that just on its own, just with us and this this magnificent white thing in front of us uh, without all these people. So what time was this that you went? Uh, it must have been, because I can remember we got up quite early, had breakfast and, and went there straight away. So we must have got there at about 8.30 or 9 o'clock. Oh, okay. So not, not like horribly early like you know civilized time it's just because winter is such a a um a low season for tourism in greece i'm sure in this if you if you went there in the summer and you went there at you know eight or nine o'clock in the morning i'm sure it'd be packed uh yeah, but we were we were just very very lucky so i remember that after athens we then oh, we also went to delphi on a tour which was uh, extremely fascinating uh, delphi was where the uh there was a kind of a crazy old lady called the oracle Right. Yes, the Oracle of Delphi. It's quite <laughs> That's right. Quite famous, not usually described as like a crazy old lady, but yes, <laughs> I'm familiar with the Oracle of Delphi. <laughs> uh, and um uh just yeah, again the same thing, the um um the just the sense of the 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 sense of scale and the sense of wonder really to those uh, ancient places. Um 
I can remember that when we left Athens, the next place we went was Munich in Germany. And uh, Munich has some stunning architecture, old and new, but I can just remember that walking through the streets of Munich after coming away from Athens was was very disappointing. Oh, really? <laughs> because Athens, you know, the, that ancient architecture, it's all white, it's all sort of smooth, and it's all, if you look closely, there's some beautiful detail there, and from a distance it looks, looks magnificent from a distance. And then you come to this sort of uh, very dark, gothic kind of uh, architecture of... Uh, of Munich when you've got like gargoyles and you've got this big massive sort of um, facades to buildings that are sort of leaning in over you with their kind of dark stone and it's kind of cloudy and and at the time it was winter. I mean that sounds like exactly what Munich should be. That is what I want from Munich I think. (laughs) If you you had just gone to Germany and you just you know just experiencing that that would be fantastic because it would be exciting because it's like wow this, this this atmosphere is incredible, but it just all so, all seems so new after after Athens. <laughs> right, right, everything just sort of seems so like kind of new and sort of underdeveloped somehow. You know, after after seeing that the you know that that legacy and that heritage that uh, Greece has. So, yeah. Anyway, if you have the opportunity to go to Greece, I I highly recommend it. Right. Yes, we'll have to. So, travel tips from Station Thirteen: Go to Greece in the winter, and go to the Parthenon early. That's right. That is the and also, I unfortunately I can't remember the name of it, but there is another uh, temple south of Lyoanji. Actually, it's quite a way around from Lyoanji, but there's another temple near where I used to live in Matsuo in Kyoto, which has a similar sort of contemplative area in the same way that Lyoanji has this. It's supposed to be this contemplative area where you sit and you look at the garden. This other temple has a garden and it has an area where you can sit and look over it and this garden is not a rock garden and it doesn't have special stones that you can only see six of at once it's just a nice garden but the first time i went there it was raining just slightly and i was i think i was in a a bit of a i was a bit upset over something or something there was some some reason i was a bit down i decided not to go straight home i'd go to this I'd, i'd just take a walk and I stumbled across this temple, which is difficult not to do in Kyoto because there are 2,000 shrines and 1,200 temples, I think. Um, so I stumbled onto this temple and I walked in and then the rain started coming down a bit more. So I, I was looking for shelter and I found this sort of contemplative area and there was nobody else, not a single other person. And it was just me watching the rain fall on this temple garden. And the garden was, you know, a fairly standard, you know, all, all the gardens I think are quite nice in these temples, but it wasn't super sort of famous or, or special or what Kyoto is famous for. It was just a fairly normal temple garden. Mm. But Japanese gardens in general, Japanese landscape design, favors rain. It looks absolutely beautiful in the rain. The, the rain, you know, it, it looks very fresh and the rain always falls very nicely and there's there's something about it i think because it it rains so much especially about now right it's rainy season now in japan yeah that's right and so you know they design the gardens to take advantage of that and so japanese gardens in the rain are absolutely beautiful it i i've always liked that have you do you like the feeling of being outside but undercover in the rain uh it's funny i've said this to people before and they look at me strangely but i th- at a very sort of base almost animal level there's something 
really nice about that. Like I feel protected, but I'm still kind of outside and that's nice. Is that a thing that you understand? Yeah, I can sort of relate. Uh, in my case, um, uh, I enjoy being in bed when it's raining. So that's kind of the same thing, you know, the, that sense that, uh, you know, you're under shelter, but actually it's hard to explain that sense, really. <laughs> I mean, it is a strange sort of the thing. The thing I like is I, I can still feel the kind of wetness around me, even though I'm not actually getting wet. And the, the so, I mean, it's not so cold in Japan, but, you know, there's a, it's a bit of coldness that comes from the rain and the, and the wetness. And the fact that it's so close and I can reach my arm out and touch it and get rained on, on my arm, but, but I'm covered and I can sort of, and there's this kind of smell, I think that everyone talks about the smell, you know, coming up from the grass after it rains, but you know, during the rain as well, I don't know, there's something really nice about it, but not many people seem to know what I'm talking about when I, when I bring that up. You must be British. Yes. Well, Yes, well done. You you got me, Governor. Uh, <laughs> yes. Anyway, so I can't remember the name of that temple right now, but I will look it up and I will put it in the show notes. And uh, if you if you are in Kyoto and you want a nice, quiet, contemplative contemplative experience away from the tourists, this is one place where you can get it. I'm sure there are many others because there are so many shrines, and only a few of them are super famous. So. Mm. Okay, I've got a video I want you to watch, and I want you to watch it live. Right now? I'm going to link, um, yeah, I'm going to link you to it. Okay. You might, I hope you haven't already seen this, because that'll ruin the whole segment. You know something? <laughs> yes. I have actually seen this before. Not this specific video, but I have seen this, this sport All right. before. Well, that's fine. You can, you can try and explain what's going on. What are, you, what are you watching? Okay, I'll explain what I'm seeing. I am watching a duel between two... Uh, seemingly uh, self-made remote-controlled cars loaded up with sort of weapons to sort of de defeat each other, such as scoops to push the other one over. Some of them have got, like, arms. Uh, it's kind of like a sumo match where they're trying to push each other out of this small small ring. It is exactly a sumo match. If you look at the title of the video, it is called Robot Sumo. There's a lot of damage being done here. It is amazing. I saw this and I wanted to share it. It is... S the the robots are moving so fast right and i'm not sure i've watched the video a couple of times i've been trying to work it out maybe i should just look it up but i'm not sure whether they are remote controlled or whether they are controlled by ai no they must be remote controlled there's like looking at the way that they're moving there's no way that this could be well no i guess it is possible that it could be AI. i don't know i mean because they move so quickly and you know, I, I, if they're remote controlled, then hats off to the people controlling them because, I mean, the AI would be difficult, sure, but controlling the robots like that is also difficult. No, I've, I've um, seen this on NHK in uh, Japan previously. The one that I saw, uh, actually, the, uh, the robots had, uh, I think it was less about uh, trying to push them out of the ring and more about just total destruction. Okay, well, have you heard of a series we've got in the UK? I don't know if, if it's been redone in, in Australia or, or America or anything like that. We've got a series called Robot Wars. Robot Wars. In the UK, where people build robots and then they, they battle them. But it's in a much bigger arena and the robots are like, they come up to about your waist in oh, terms wow. of size. So they're much, much bigger. It's much, but it's a, it's a much, they're also, as a result of that, much slower and more lumbering and kind of fighting each other in this big destructive way. Right. Whereas what I loved about this robot sumo thing is like real sumo, the battle is over 
almost before it starts. It's so fast. And they're just going at each other and the robots just get completely destroyed. Sometimes they get pushed out. Sometimes they get just flipped up in the air and land back down. It's amazing. I see a lot of parts flying off here too. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like there's a common thing where like the... Uh, the robots are fanning out these sort of wings that come out on either side of them. Right. And that seems to be a common tactic, which I'm not sure how, you know, it gives them a bit more surface area to push with, but it also means that the other robot can quite easily, you know, bump into them and knock them out of the way. So I don't know how effective that is. No, I think it's because the, at least in the matches here, the the opponent has like a big scoop on the front to try and uh, turn turn him over. So if you've got these big wings out to the side, then uh, it'll mean you're harder to turn over. Oh, I see. I see. That makes the ver- sense. The version of this that I saw had similar sized robots, small, clearly remote controlled with um, uh, technology from remote control cars, and um, but various gimmicks uh, like big hammers that come out of the top. One of the ones that I saw had sparks. Uh, I don't know if that's supposed to... <laughs> how effective that would do be, anything <laughs> right from an offensive point of view but uh, um uh the, that one that i saw was was actually about distraction whereas this one is just about pushing them out of the out of the ring right but uh it's pretty great no i'm, I'm pretty sure this must be actually remote controlled because if you imagine the amount of time that's required to to build the thing to begin with then the amount of time on top of that that's required to actually create an ai system that tracks the other robot and and uh, you know works out what to do. Yeah, I mean that would be the hardest part probably is is tracking it and following what it's doing and trying to decide. And some of the strategies they pick seem like they would be difficult strategies for an AI. But then AI is you know making leaps and bounds at the moment. It, an AI can beat a human at go easily now. So right. who says it can't? fight robots ais can also clean our floors with these those uh we should get those those roomba you know those uh, little uh, vacuum cleaning robots that move this fast that'd be great that that would be horrific have you i've got a roomba i do not want it to move that fast <laughs> <laughs> have you do you, i do you recommend them because i have to say i've never been to a house that has a roomba or that uses a roomba and thought and not thought these floors are a little bit grimy Oh, really? I should come to your house. Mm. Well, you should come to our house that we used to have in Japan. Our house here is carpeted, so you can't tell. But uh, to us, it made the, the biggest difference to our life, I think. Because we, you know, we were both working quite long hours. And we, we had limited time at home. Right. And we would use a non-insubstantial portion of that time vacuuming. And when we got the Roomba, we didn't stop vacuuming, mm. but it decreased by a huge amount. So, and, and the overall cleanliness of the house was much improved. Okay. So the Roomba we've set to go around every day. So not a day goes by when the house doesn't get a base level cleaning. Right. And then, then when we noticed something that it had missed... Or, you know, occasion, just occasionally as well, you know, at the weekend or whatever, when there was a, an, a difficult-to-get-to corner, we would do that manually with a, a, another vacuum cleaner. Right. But So it was, it, you know, if you just rely on the Roomba and nothing else, I think perhaps that wouldn't work because there are places it can't get to and 
it's not really AI the room, but it uses a very simple set of rules to navigate the room. So, you know, d- depending on what happens, it may get a good basis over the whole room, or it may just totally miss areas. And there's not, you can't really guarantee it. So you do still need to vacuum, but instead of needing to vacuum like regularly as we did before, right? You know, we you only need to vacuum occasionally. You know, when when something's actually dirty is the wrong word, but you know when the, you know when when it's needed. So yeah, no, we we think it's great. I would totally recommend it, but not. I I wouldn't want you to have the misconception that you will never need to vacuum again if you have one. I would have thought that that's the reason that you would buy one. Like if if vacuuming takes 20 minutes once a week and the day before you vacuum, the floor's a little bit grimy, uh, I would have thought that the reason or that the, the whole point that they would sell you something like that or that you would want to buy something like that is to save you that time from vacuuming. Well, it is. But so, I mean, yeah, we don't need to vacuum all that often, but we we were... I think it would be you know, a couple of times a week we'd have to vacuum before we got the room. Okay. And, you know, now we don't. So, Danny, I think um, uh, avid listeners of Station 13 will recall that in episode two, I believe it was, we started off with you demonstrating the fine functionality of your custom uh, standing desk that actually can rise between standing and sink down to sitting position. So do you, are you using a standing desk at work now? I'm using, I use a standing desk both at work and at home, and it's pretty good. I mostly use it sitting, which, you know, is, is the joke. I know a, a while back we were talking at Vitae about standing desks, and for a while there were a couple of us that would put a, another small sort of IKEA table on top of our normal desk and put a computer on top of that and try and make a makeshift standing desk to give it a go. Mm. But the, the real, the really important thing about standing desks, which I have come to discover now that I have a real one, is that they are adjustable height desks. Right. Not specifically that they're standing desks. I'm not sure standing all the time is much of an improvement over sitting all the time. Right, right. But the crucial thing is that you should change your position. This is what all the ergonomics people say now. So you should spend some time sitting and some time standing and do what feels comfortable at the time. And so shoving a load of boxes on top of your desk to make a standing desk doesn't really cut it because that's very hard to assemble and disassemble. So you just don't. Right. Whereas if it's just a button on the side of the desk that you can raise and lower it at will, it's quite good because... If the whim ever takes you, you can just press the the button for the desk to go up and you can stand for a bit. And then the moment you get bored of that or tired, you can lower it again and sit down. That's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, I, I remember that I have tried once uh, for one day um, at the company at, at Vitae where I work. There's there, there was no desk space left on a certain day and I had to, I was relegated to standing at sort of like a, a, a bar area right and uh um it was too low to be because I, I believe the correct posture for a standing desk is that you are when you raise your arms to the keyboard your your elbow needs to be at a right angle that's right yeah and it was it was a little bit too low for that and didn't have anything to prop the computer up to make it higher so i ended up having a stool and i was sitting at this thing on a stool and uh being on a stool for a while kind of forces you to to shift around your position because it's basically uncomfortable. 
Mm. And I do remember the, 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 the sort of, I had this incredibly uncontrollable urge to wander around. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which is, which is good as well as bad. I mean, it's good because it's good for your body to wander around. And it's good if you're working in an environment where you're going to be interacting with other people. For a while, I was working with a standing desk when I was uh, leading a team. And so I had to go off to other people's computers and help them with issues quite often. And it was very convenient that anybody could come up to me and ask me questions. And there was no friction to going over and helping them. Right, because you just sort of walk across. I just walk across, yeah. Right. I do remember that the end of that day that I had, I was uh, um, very tired in a very, very unusual way. <laughs> like kind of very physically and mentally tired at the same time. Right. Which was a new experience for me. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I think, I don't think standing all day is really the idea. I mean, I, I used to do that when I worked in a shop and I didn't much like it then and I don't much like it now. Right. But having the option to be able to do it and so actually, I quite often, when I do use the standing mode, which is not all that frequently, I'll be honest, but when I do, it's often because I'm tired. I'm sitting down and I'm tired and I'm not getting any work done and I'm struggling to concentrate. Mm. And I notice that this is happening and I think, oh, maybe I'll just try standing for a bit because, you know, it'll just be a bit of a, I can't just sit back in my chair and, and do nothing sort of thing you know i'm right if you're standing you feel a bit more active and i've done that a couple of times and it it really does help like it can get you it can get you just doing work again right do you um where you work is there a large proportion of because you work in a big company but is there a large proportion of people who are standing i see some yeah i don't know I'm, i've i've not taken measurements i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's interesting. The um, I have you know a lot of friends have been getting into standing desks, and um, you know people say that you do need you know maybe one to two weeks to sort of get used to it. Uh, you also need uh, something soft to stand on, like something. You, it's best not to just stand on the floor. You know you need some kind That's of right, yeah. sort of pad or something underneath your feet, uh, and obviously you need a desk that is exactly the right height, um, so that you're not putting sort of unnecessary strain on your body in other ways. Mm. The uh, those Herman Miller Aeron chairs. Yes, the famous. Those famous. They they are incredibly good. And part of the reason that they are that good, I think, is because they are stable when you sit still on them. But it's so easy to sort of bend and flex them if you want to move your body around. Right. So it's kind of like they, if you just sit still, it's a very, it's a good stable kind of base for you to be sitting on. But as soon as you want to stretch or you want to move, they, they flex so easily that it sort of encourages you to every now and then to sort of stretch out or to to change, to shift your position. So I think that's that's probably the key, really. I mean, if you have the kind of job where you are required to sit down, uh, uh, you know, I feel especially for um, reception staff and staff who have to uh, uh, basically be on, on call for customers and things like that, you know, people like that actually have to sit down for the whole day. And it's very, you know, people who don't really have the opportunity to sort of stand up and uh, go over to talk to somebody else or, you know, that, that's got to be really rough. And I suppose in, in a situation like that, having a, a desk that you can very easily convert to standing and sitting would be really, really useful. But I guess that's a, you know, pr programmers are like that too, right? Because uh, programmers have to, um, you, you'll be sitting at your desk for sometimes many hours trying to solve a problem as opposed to sort of walking around, talking to somebody, coming back or going to a, 
I don't know, like a photocopier or something or a, or a drink machine or something and coming back. Right. There's a definite, people think of programmers as just being shut up in a hole doing their own thing. And that is often true. But I think that the communication and talking to other people is also super important. Mm. But there is definitely, they're like two different modes of operation, right? The, the mode where you are discussing things and considering different ideas and, and talking to people is one. But then you do need times when you can shut everything else out and just focus on something. And depending on how difficult the problem is, you might have to hold a number of abstract ideas in your head simultaneously. Right. And it takes quite a long time to establish the kind of structure to hold these ideas in. Like the, You might have all the ideas available in your head, but to understand the relationships between them and how they fit together, it's a strange sort of structuring of, of abstract notions that happens in your mind that I think takes time to happen. And you need to construct that every time you, you sit down. So that's why programmers quite often get grumpy when they get interrupted because it's like somebody's come and knocked over their sort of thing that they were making in their head. And now they've got to pick it up and, and build it again when, when they get back to work. So that notion of uh, focus is important and of flow, they call it. Is uh, an open plan office actually detrimental to the productivity of a programmer? There's a lot of research on that topic. As far as I can tell, but I do look at it from a slightly biased angle, the answer seems to be yes. Mm. Most people in uh, when they're filling out forms and things like that, when they do research into people how much they actually enjoy their work environment. The, the majority of people who work in open plan offices respond that they, they don't enjoy it. The, the argument for open plan offices seems to be mostly that uh, people can work easily together, mm. uh, that, they can, that it encourages creativity because different kinds of people can very easily talk to each other and interact. And that may be true, but certainly for programming, and I think also, at least in games, for art and design and the other aspects of of making games these two modes exist there are times when you need to get together and talk about things and come up with solutions to problems and and be creative together and there are times when you just need to sit down and get work done and being able to focus is very important for that and that is easier to do if you have your own office. Even even if you're an artist working on a game, I think that is true. There are obviously other advantages to open plan offices, which people rarely talk about, but are legitimate, such as the fact that they are cheaper, right? It is clearly cheaper to buy one reasonably sized room and sit, you know, 10 or 20 people in it than it is to get 10 or 20 individual offices. And People don't like to say that's why we're making this an open plan office. People like to say we're doing it so we can be free and creative. Right. But it's not nothing right. being cheap. Like that is an important thing for for companies to be able to reduce their costs. So, yeah. you know, it, it is a balance that, that people have to strike. Choosing between an open plan office, which has some advantages in terms of being able to talk to people very easily and having uh, off-the-cuff quick meetings at a moment's notice, which aren't, you know, are almost not meetings, 
if you're all in different offices, then sometimes it can be that you feel like you've got to set up a proper meeting and then everyone stops what they're doing to go to that meeting and then the meeting drags on because everyone feels like they've got to say everything they had to say, otherwise it won't be communicated. Right. So there are disadvantages to that approach as well. So I'm not say, you know, I'm I'm not gonna say that there's you know, there are advantages either way. And there's also the cost advantage of an open plan office and, and people who are designing office spaces and deciding how they're going to structure their company. Uh, that is a thing they have to bear in mind. And the other thing is that so many places are moving to an open plan style now mm. that the kind of office space that you can rent is mostly open plan. It's very difficult to find a traditional single office units yeah that you can even rent so you know it's interesting because the from the japanese side um i've worked in uh, several japanese companies and they're always open plan and the reason for it is usually more cultural than i mean obviously there are the logistic issues of you know the fact that office space obviously is at a premium and uh, you are very unlikely to find in japan in a japanese city you're very unlikely to find uh a place that actually allows for, for example, separate rooms for different people. That's just unheard of, really. Um, even sort of cubicles is something that uh, only the very, very largest of companies with the biggest spaces uh, can achieve. But so it's usually, obviously, it starts from that necessity, the space necessity of needing to have people sitting close next to each other. But I've, um, in the companies that I've been in, uh, there's also a sort of a, I guess, because of that, um, because of that uh, background behind the, the, the physical space, there's sort of now a cultural expectation that, well, we're a group, so we sit together. You know, everybody is sort of a cultural context now where, where the company is a team and we work together, so it only makes sense that we all are right next to each other. And it's interesting, in the largest company that I worked in in Japan, uh, there was never, ever a situation where it was beneficial for us to all be in the same room because... Um, I can remember that um, it'd always be a little bit awkward because you could overhear conversations from other departments. There was never a case where culturally, there was never a case where it was very appropriate for you to just stand up, go across to another department and just chat to somebody. You know, that was just the specific culture of that company. But, it, you know, you, you, you tended to have to go through the right channels to speak to somebody. It was never a case of just, you know, wandering over and tapping somebody on the shoulder. So that, that's another reason, again, why it was just always a bit um, inconvenient having everybody in the same room. And I can remember that departmental meetings obviously would always go into small meeting rooms that were designed specifically for that. You know, particularly sensitive phone calls were always made. People would have to stand up and go across to, you know, go into these meeting rooms to have sensitive phone calls. And uh, you only get sort of the negative sides of it, which is that you have a tiny amount of space. You've got your your immediate colleagues basically rubbing elbows with you, basically, which means everybody can see what everybody else is doing, uh, which uh, sometimes, you know, is a, is not a helpful thing for productivity. It's also, uh, it also meant that um, when there are issues happening in other departments, when things suddenly happen and nobody is prepared for it, so you don't have the ability to sort of, okay, everybody, let's book a room at three o'clock so we can discuss this crisis situation. It, when, when something suddenly happens, then everybody in the office knows about it because you can hear it. And that also in certain situations, you know, I mean, there's definitely a time and a place for transparency, for corporate transparency uh, inside a company, but there's also a time and place for confidentiality and a, and a time when, you know, it, it's best to have other departments find out about certain things in the right way and at the right time 
not immediately because it's happening right there at the table next to them, you know? <laughs> so right. I, I can remember always thinking that the, the, the typical quintessential Japanese company could really benefit from that sort of old style Western approach where everybody has their own office, uh, which is, as I said, just because the space requirements in this, com in this country is completely uh, uh, out of the question, like it could never really be like that. But uh, yeah, it's just interesting the way that uh, those spatial requirements have formed a kind of a culture where, you know, we're a group and we work together and we solve problems together, even if it would be more efficient for us not to solve things together, we have to. So, right. yeah, it's it's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. And people have sort of coping mechanisms, like they wear headphones. I used to put headphones on sometimes, even when I wasn't listening to music. I just had nothing playing. It was right. just literally like putting a sign on my desk saying, don't disturb me. I'm working. Right. <laughs> and it worked. So that is, you know, that, and I've heard of other people doing a similar thing. Like that is an unfortunate thing that you have to do. But I also don't think there's much point in sitting around complaining about it because there's no big conspiracy to try and make your productivity bad. Like the people who are employing you want you to do good work. Right. So they are balancing some trade-offs that's interesting isn't it because that the the company that company that i mentioned you would never ever get away with having headphones on right like that's that's just way it, that you just right i mean that's that's a very sort of programmery game dev kind of thing to say because obviously there's a, a lot of companies where it would be out of the question uh, to wear headphones at work and to look like you might be enjoying yourself while you're <laughs> uh, doing your job but uh obviously at games companies it's it's common you see more people with headphones on than off i think yeah that's interesting isn't it uh i remember when i um first joined a larger game company working it's like wow what a luxury you know you can come in here in your sneakers and your jeans and t-shirts and and you can have music on while you well of course in my case because my job is to make music i have to have headphones on anyway especially <laughs> in an office of other people but uh you know it, it just so many things like that seem uh, like such a luxury when you've come from that more sort of stiff Japanese corporate culture right. and corporate environment. Yeah, it's funny. I've I've never had a proper job, so I don't know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> yes.